0: We're going to be in Psalm 85 today, so if you want to go ahead and turn there, or you can follow along on our screen. And before we read it, I just want to, while you're kind of going there... Have you ever heard someone say the expression, I wouldn't want to share a foxhole with that guy? Wouldn't want to share a foxhole with that guy? Um, or maybe I would want to share a foxhole with that guy, right? It's, it's a, uh, I heard somebody say that this week, and it, it kind of struck me, I, I, it's not a normally evident, evidently maybe in our generation, because we're not really used to foxholes, right? You said that a generation ago, everybody would understand what you meant, um, Not many of us will literally be in a war zone or a foxhole anytime soon. It's a figure of speech that, for the most part, we know means that a person is not trustworthy. If you wouldn't want to share a foxhole with a guy, that means I don't know that I can trust him. Okay. If you would, then that means it's the converse of that. They don't have what it takes, right? This guy you don't want to share the foxhole with. The chips are down, back is against the wall. You may feel that a particular person doesn't pack the necessary punch to keep you safe and get you out of a hairy situation. Then necessarily there are those people, like I said, that you may want to share a foxhole with. The guy who is prepared, who is gritty, who is resourceful, and who keeps his word. The foxhole, the place of suffering, is where God's people find themselves in Psalm 85. And so they and the psalmist is gonna recount for you, he wants God in his foxhole. He wants to be accompanied by the Lord. He wants to know the comfort and peace that comes with having God on his side because he knows God is reliable and trustworthy and so on and so forth. And we'll line that out a little bit here as we go. But it is a self-created suffering that the Israelites have found themselves in in Psalm 85. God is punishing, surprise, surprise with the Israelites, God is punishing their unfaithfulness. God calls them stiff-necked in a lot of places, right? They're a stiff-necked people. They often find themselves in a situation of suffering of their own making, but nevertheless, it is suffering, and they are in the foxhole, so to speak. They know who they need by their side. They know who can deliver them. And the context for this psalm, exactly it's not exactly known how they got themselves into the situation, Uh, one commentary said perhaps it was the psalm of a famine. They had come across dry times in their land, and oftentimes for the people of Israel, there was a direct tie between their unfaithfulness and and the ability of the, the land flowing with milk and honey to produce what they actually needed to survive. God would stop the rain or cut them off or, or give them bad crops because they were being unfaithful, to remind them of who it is that provides for them and so forth. So maybe it was one of these. Another, I think, maybe more convincing theory was, if you look, because we're in the third book of the Psalms, there's five books in the Psalms. This book we're in is the third book. We're smack dab in the middle of it in 85 here. And it perhaps because there's some Psalms in the 70s, 73, 74, and 79 that talk about an invading army coming in and decimating the temple of the Lord or des- you know, basically taking things from God's house and so forth, and you have a lot of that lament psalm, how long, O oh Lord, will you let this go on, and so on and so forth. So perhaps maybe in Psalm 85, we're looking at a situation where God was using other invading nations to punish his people, again, for their lack of faithfulness to him. We don't know. We don't know what exactly it is, but we know that their backs are against the wall, they're in the, fo- they're in the foxhole, so to speak, and they're trying to figure out, trying to convince God to help them, come back to them, to repent of where they were, and then the Lord to bring them forward. The title of this psalm is Revive Us Again. Revive Us Again, I thought, makes, makes the first song of the service really easy to pick when the psalm name is Revive Us Again. And, and, and more bang for your buck, we, uh, I was hoping maybe that, that maybe might bring Baby Goodwin along a little bit faster if Colleen gets over on them drums goes to town. So we're trying everything we can, trying everything we can to bring her out. Oh, by the way, we had a new baby, uh, the Finks, Brittany and David Fink. They've been a couple times with us. Where, are they here? Do what? Are they there? Oh, there he is. What's up, David? What's going on, man? David's a new dad this week. Uh, give him a round of applause. Baby's not here, but he's here. He is a good-looking kid. Uh, I'm going to pronounce his name wrong because I've done it every time. Is it Eliam? Eliam. i keep trying to get it right. Tell, tell us. Eliam. Tell us full name. Liam Timothy Fink. This is David's first son. He's got four daughters, and he got his boy. Yeah. All right? Yeah. <laughs> Woo-hoo. That's good. It's good. He's excited. We're excited for you guys too. So anyway, let's... Celebration. We like to celebrate babies, and the Lord's being good to us in that way. Psalm, revive us again. In our American evangelical context, revival brings mental images of Billy Graham big tents and altar calls, right? I often hear people say that we need to pray for revival, and I agree with that, but with a footnote that says make sure you are praying and watching for what the Bible defines as revival, not our sliver of American Christianity defines as revival. We have to be careful. I think that this psalm helps us to do just that, to get a biblical vision of revival, what it means when God's people are revived or resurrected or given life again. So there's four parts to this psalm, four, four sections, and I'll line them out and then we'll jump in. Number one, in the blueprint of revival for God's people, number one, they know they are wrong. Keyword: repentance. Okay, so, there's going to be four key words to help you remember. They know that God's people know they are wrong. This is the first step in revival repentance. Number two, they remember that God has a track record of forgiving. So, remembering. So, repentance, remembering. Number three, they plead for salvation in the present. So, they remember from the past, they plead in the present for salvation from God. So, repent, remember, plead. And finally, they hope in the character of God for salvation now and in the future. So repentance, repent, remember, plead, and hope. Repent, remember, plead, and hope. One, two, three, four. So they know they are wrong. That's the first point. Before a single word of the psalm is spoken, this point can be deduced. It is the cause of Psalm 85, and Psalm 85 is the effect. So the cause would be that God's people are in the wrong, and Psalm 85 is the effect of them knowing that they're in the wrong. It'd be a good time for us to read Psalm 85 right now. Here it is. Verse 1, you were favorable to your land. You restored the fortunes of Jacob. You forgave the iniquity of your people. You covered all of their sin. You withdrew all of your wrath. You turned from your hot anger. Restore us again, O God, of our salvation and put away your indignation towards us. Will you be angry with us forever? Will you prolong your anger to all the generations? Will you not revive us again? that your people may rejoice in you. Show us your steadfast love, O God, O Lord, and grant us your salvation. Verse eight, let me hear what God the Lord will speak, for he will speak peace to his people, to his saints, but let them not turn back to folly. Surely his salvation is near to those who fear him, that glory may dwell in our land. Steadfast love and faithfulness meet. Righteousness and peace kiss each other. Faithfulness springs up from the ground, and righteousness looks down from the sky. Yes, the Lord will give what is good, and our land will yield its increase. Righteousness will go before him and make his footsteps away. May God bless the reading of his word. Before a single word of this psalm is penned, the deduction is that God's people have done something wrong. They have been unfaithful to the Lord. Psalm 85 assumes that there is a definite and absolute standard, and that standard has been violated by God's people. One of the great concerns of our current current culture is a concern for justice. Justice, righting wrongs. Righting wrongs. But one of the questions that our culture doesn't ask is, what's the definition of justice and what's the foundation of justice? Who gets to define what justice is? Who gets to determine its parameters? And there are all kinds of explanations that we could look to for explaining what just and justice is. But humans are cre- are, if humans are not created in the image of God, and if there isn't a God who has an absolute and final standard of justice, then I think we're going to continue to have a situation where the definition of justice and the application of justice remains completely disputed and confusion will continue to abound. You understand what I'm saying? Justice, everybody's all super concerned with justice all the time right now. But unless there is an absolute standard for what justice is and an absolute standard for who sets the terms of what justice is, then justice is only what's right in your eyes or another person's eyes. You see what I'm saying? And it's chaos. It's chaos. The ancient Greeks didn't believe that there was an absolute standard uh, for humanity. The ancient Greeks um, did not believe that humans were made in the image, images and likeness of God. And as a result, they didn't believe for humans were responsible for what they did. So if you think, for instance, of the great story of the Iliad, Homer, and the, you know, Homer the Iliad, the ancient Greek story, that story starts because this guy named Paris from Troy goes over uh, on what's supposed to be a peace mission to the Greek city-states, and he takes a liking to a, a, a lady named Helen, who is, happens to be the wife of a very powerful king named Menelaus. Well, Paris convinces Helen to go back to Troy with him and commit adultery, so to speak. And as a result, all of Greece comes and besieges the city of Troy. But nobody, if you read the Iliad, nobody holds Helen responsible. Nobody holds Paris responsible. The reason given for what these two people did is because the goddesses that were intervening in their lives were rewarding Paris with a beautiful woman for the choices that he had made to serve them. So it wasn't about adultery or about infidelity. It was about the gods being ultimately in control of these human beings' lives and their fates. And so, so we see that in those scenarios, people are not responsible, and yet they do not escape responsibility. And the whole idea of the Greek army coming and besieging Troy And holding the Trojans responsible is the whole point of the story. Somebody has to pay the bill, so to speak. Yes, they wanted to escape personal responsibility, but there still literally was war, hell, to pay for their choices. So there's this denial of responsibility even as they try to maintain. We've got the same thing at work in our own culture today. It's not the gods who inhabit the heavens. It's not Zeus or Hera or Athena or the rest. No, it's chemical processes in our brains, but we're not responsible for our actions or our appetites or our cravings or our desires. It's not my fault. can't be my fault because if it's my fault then I have to own up to it. If there's a standard and I don't meet the standard, that means there's something lacking in me and, oh, no, I couldn't, couldn't, possibly, couldn't possibly be me, little old me. I'm great. It's, it's, it's the processes in my brain. It's that ethnic group that's the problem. It's those one percenters, those rich thugs that's the problem. Or it's this president or that president who's the problem. Couldn't possibly be me. It's not my fault. The va- the Bible has a very different account of these things. In the Bible story, people are made in the image and likeness of God, and people make responsible choices by which and for which they are held responsible for their actions. And the standard of justice comes from the true and living God, and it does not change. People know deep down in their souls when they are guilty and people are yearning for an absolute standard of justice. And what, make, what we have in Psalm 85 is a response to God's absolute standard of justice and the appeal for mercy from God. That's what's amazing about the Bible is that it so perfectly combines justice and the possibility of mercy together. It's the only worldview that can hold that much weight. God's people have come into the land. They've broken the covenant, and now they're experiencing God's wrath. God told them, if you break the covenant, these are the curses that you will experience. He lined it out for them, not once, not twice, over and over and over again with the prophets and Moses. And he's told them and told them and told them, if you do this, this will happen. The standard never changed. It was always the same. It wasn't like this was an unfair God who was moving the the target around for them. They had to try to make it. No, he told them what they had to do. They failed to do it over and over and over again. And now they are experiencing the curses. The psalmist realizes that it's their fault. And now he's appealing for mercy. And if revival is to break out there, then first revival must break out here in their hearts. If, we say this a lot. We need to pray, pray for revival, that all those unwashed heathens would just get saved, when in fact, revival has to start where? Right here. Revival has to start right here. And the first step in revival, if we want the rest of the world to experience true revival, the first step for them would be repentance. And so therefore, the first step for us as the model of what revival looks like for us is repentance it has to happen here it has to happen there we are to be humbled sinners not self-righteous day after day week after week year after year crying out for mercy we have nothing to be haughty about listen to me you have nothing to be haughty about I don't care how good your biblical theology is. I I don't care how many times you've read through the Bible. I don't care how many times you've made great choices, those Christian living choices and so forth, and you should. But it does not make you any less a hell-bound sinner than anyone else. But by the grace of Jesus Christ coming and saving your soul, you're no better Some of us need, I, I, we need to hear that this morning. You're no better. That person, that coworker, you're no better than they are. Self-righteousness is no righteousness, brothers and sisters. Righteousness only comes from God. And so we have to begin this psalm before we can continue on to have our hearts revived and understand this plan for revival. We have to begin this morning and ask ourselves the question, are you where the psalmist is? Even before verse one, are you where the psalmist is? Repentant, ready to listen, ready to say, it's my fault. I'm a sinner. It's our fault. We're sinners. And so the psalmist begins. That's where they're at. That's where he begins. And then verses 1 through 3 is our first or second point. Repentance is first. Second, they remember that God has a track record of forgiving. God has a track record of forgiving. Let's read 1 through 3. Lord, you were favorable. You were. You were favorable to your land. You restored the fortunes of Jacob. You forgave the iniquity of your people. You covered over all their sins. You withdrew your wrath and you turned from your white hot anger. He's recounting this. And specifically in the scriptures, he's recounting the events of Exodus chapter 32, verse 34. Remember when Moses, they they all went to Mount Sinai and Moses went up the mountain to get the golden calf, or not the golden calf, getting ahead of myself, get the tablets. And he came down the mountain and they were having a giant party, drunkenness and Sexual immorality and idol worship abounded. Moses, he was like, I just left for a couple days. So he gets mad, naturally, as their leader, breaks the stone tablets, gets upset. And then the Levites go through and they kind of purge the camp. They kill people that were the ringleaders for this Debauchery and this terrible activity. And then Moses goes back into the tent with God, and he's like, what do, you, what, what do I do now? What do I do now? And God says to him, Moses, just step aside, bro. I'm just, gonna, I'm just gonna make a greasy spot where Israel used to be. We're just gonna take care of this. I'm gonna give them exactly what they deserve, and then I'll make a nation out of you. And Moses looks to God, and he says, God, no, no, remember who you are. He says, remember that you, have, you made promises to Abraham and to Isaac and to Jacob. And if you do that now, then the Egyptians will just laugh and they'll, they'll defame you because they'll say their God brought them out of the desert just to destroy them. Don't do that, God. And you know what the scripture says? It says, God relented. He relented. He turned aside. You forgave the iniquity of your people. You covered all their sin. You withdrew all your wrath. You turned back from your hot anger. God is, uh, the psalmist is reminding of how God is merciful to his people before, and now he's going to ask for that same mercy again. You could translate verse 2, you bore or you carried away the iniquity of your people. You forgave the iniquity. could be you carried away or you bore the iniquity. And I think that's getting at the way that the old covenant sacrificial system worked. They would bring in an animal to the temple and they would lay their hands on the head of this animal in a a guilt transference ceremony from the sinner to the animal. And then they would kill the animal and then they would use the blood from the animal and they would splatter it all over the altar. So it's like the guilt of the transgressor is being transferred to God's temple. And it's not the animal any longer that's bearing the sin, but the very temple of God that bears God's sin. And this, they this, have probably never thought of it this before. I didn't think of it until I got into the biblical theology of this. We always think about the animal being the thing that bore the transgressions. It wasn't. The animal's blood was used and splattered all over the temple. And because on the day of atonement, they had to cleanse the temple. That was a part of their Ceremony for Yom Kippur, the holiest day of the year for the Jews. They had to cleanse the temple and it's because the Lord himself had been bearing the sins of the people. And of course, we know this is what Christ did on the cross. Our guilt. Those of us who have turned from sin and trusted in Christ, our guilt is transferred to Jesus and he has borne our guilt, making it so that this forgiveness is possible. You forgave the iniquity of your people, it says, and then there's another aspect of it. You covered all their sin. God somehow makes it so that sin is covered by blood so that when God looks at people and talks about The worshiper who needs to realize the guilt of his sin he doesn't see the guilty one he sees Christ this is amazing this is amazing you can be somebody who's guilty and God himself is bearing your guilt that is an amazing thought you could be somebody who, because you've turned from your sin and trusted in Christ, even though you're guilty, God makes it so that your guilt is covered when he looks at you. He doesn't see guilt. He sees atonement. He sees Jesus. He sees the provision that's been made on your behalf. Amen? That is beautiful. Verse 3, you withdrew all your wrath. This is the result of the atonement, that the covering of the forgi- and the forgiveness that's taking place. If the sin and the guilt is covered, then there's no more reason for God to feel righteous indignation against the transgressor. So he turns from his white-hot anger. So by way of application here, I'm going to make a similar point to what I made a couple weeks ago in Psalm 63. Keep track of God's mercy to you and forgiveness of you. I don't know that I've ever had back-to-back sermons with a similar application point, but it's just in the text. So maybe it's important. Maybe, maybe you needed to hear it again today. Write it down. Write it down. Start keeping a journal to record God's mercy to you. Keep track of what God has done for you. Get some mechanism for remembering God's mercy to you because inevitably you will be in a foxhole like the psalmist and you will need to remember that God is Merciful. Some of you live in a foxhole, so you really have to remember God is merciful. He has been merciful to you before, and it will give you hope because he's been merciful before. And if God can be merciful to the stiff-necked Israelites building golden calves and being dumb, he can be merciful to you. So now the voice shifts from the past to the present as we go into to three. So we had revival, okay? Revival is repentance, number one. Number two, remembering. Number three, pleading for salvation in the present. Plead. Verse 4, restore us again, O God, of our salvation, and put away your indignation towards us. Will you be angry with us forever? Will you prolong your anger to all generations? Will you not revive us again that your people may rejoice in you? Show us your steadfast love, O Lord, and grant us your salvation. Let me, let me do something to set some people free this morning. You don't have to leave here the same you came in. Hear me you don't have to leave this church house this morning the same way you came in. Your tomorrow does not have to look like your yesterday. Can I get a witness? Amen. Many of you, as I look into your eyes, your lives tell that very story loud and proud. You don't have to be the same leaving this place as what you came in. You can know freedom. You can cry out for salvation. Here in verse 4, he says, Restore us again, O God of our salvation. Put away your indignation towards us. The Bible says that everyone, Romans ten thirteen who calls on the name of the Lord will be what? Saved. Today is the day of salvation, the scripture says. If the Son sets you free, you will be free Indeed. Indeed. The power of Christ is strong enough to break whatever chains bind you. You can have freedom. You can have freedom, but you are responsible. We're not the ancient Greeks. We don't believe that the gods Hera and Athena and Diana, and we don't believe that you're just controlled by chemical makeup that's going to determine your destiny from here on out. Nor do we believe It's you're absolved of your responsibility. You have responsibility before God. It takes away your dignity as a human being. God made you in his image. He made you beautiful and with thinking capacity and he made you for his glory. And if we rob you of your responsibility, then we also rob you of your dignity. What I'm calling you to do is to turn away from those masters, those, slave, those sins that are have you bound in chains that are enslaving you, that would kill you, and to trust completely in the one who can free you. And I'm inviting you to pursue him with us. Now. Right now. Not later. Not after church. Now. Now. Today. Right now is the day of salvation. The psalmist he asks some rhetorical questions here of God then. He, he's confident in the salvation that God can offer. Restore us again. He's telling him, I want it right now. I want you to restore me right now. And then he asks these rhetorical questions. He knows the answers to these questions. Will you be angry with us forever? Of course he knows he's not. God's not going to be angry with him forever. He's just recounting where God wasn't angry with Israel a day after they had committed grievous sin. He knows the answer to that question. Will you prolong your anger to all generations? No. He knows this. This is rhetorical. It's like a child that's been promised something like ice cream, and they're asking, are we going to get it yet? Is it coming yet? I took, Evelyn's birthday was just a couple, my seven-year-old, a couple, I guess that was last week, not a couple weeks ago, last Saturday, last Saturday, seven, she turned seven, and uh, we got a day to go together to Evansville, and I said, you can go anywhere you want to eat. Where do you want to eat? We'll go anywhere for lunch you want to go. And of all of her choices on the west side of Evansville, she picked Dairy Queen. Dairy Queen. And of course, it was lunchtime, so you get the five-buck lunch. You know what I'm saying? So so not only that, but Evelyn chose. I said, said, babe, you can go anywhere you want. Why did you pick Dairy Queen? Because at the end, I get ice cream, ice cream. And as she ate her meal, all through that meal, she had chicken strips. She likes chicken strips. She was eating those chicken strips. And I'd I say, are you ready for your ice cream yet? And she'd get that giggle, a little smile on her face. Yeah. And then she'd say, did I get it yet? I'd well, you got to finish your food. Is it time yet? No, gotta, you got some fries to finish up. And then finally it was time. She got her ice cream and she enjoyed it. This is how the psalmist is relating to God. As a child That comes to a father and says, they know they're going to get it. He knows it's coming. These are rhetorical questions. He's he's hearkening God. He's wearing God down, so to speak, knowing that the promise is going to come. Will you not revive us again? Will you be angry with us forever? Will you give us revival that we can rejoice in you? Of course God is going to do these things. This is what the psalmist wants. And then he just comes out and says it in verse 7 through 9. I love this, 7 through 9. This is super good. He's kind of hinting at it, hinting at it, hinting at it, and then he gets to 7. This is the thesis. It says, okay, he's asking question, asking question. God, show us your steadfast love. Give me the ice cream. Show us the steadfast love, O Lord, and grant us your salvation. Let me hear what the Lord will speak, for he will speak peace to his people, to his saints. But let them not turn back to folly. Surely his salvation is near to those who fear him, that glory may dwell in our land. He wants He wants, the Hebrew word that says he wants steadfast love, loving kindness. It's called chesed is the Hebrew word. That's what he wants from God. And it's coming out in verses eight and following. We see his confidence. He's confident that God is going to do this very thing And he knows that God can be perfectly righteous and perfectly merciful because he knows who God is. Now, this is where it gets gets meaty. The roots, there's roots in this text. So God is, he's so confident, he asks these kind of silly rhetorical questions and then declares to God that he should give him salvation because he knows that God is capable of doing this. Not only did he see him do it in the past, okay, he knows who he is before God, he's wrong, okay, he's now, want, he roots all this in the character of who God is. So it's almost like we, we had, like, we see the fruit, okay, let's just put it this way. If the past promises of God are the trunk of the tree and the, per, the past forgiveness of God are the branches of a tree... And salvation is the fruit of the tree, then the very character of God is the root that supports and nourishes the whole thing and makes the whole thing possible. So, point four revival hopes in the character of God for salvation now and in the future. Verse 10, we got to slow down here and just dwell here for a little bit. Verse 10 is one of the most beautiful verses in the Bible. If it's not on your list of verses to memorize, I would highly encourage you to put it wherever it needs to be, write it on your mirror, write it in your journal, so that it can be written on the tablet of your heart and you can cling to it all of your days. Verse 10, it says, steadfast love, hased, okay, hased, is the Hebrew word, and faithfulness meet. Steadfast love and faithfulness meet, meet, uh, Amet is the word for faithfulness here. So you've got steadfast love, the merciful inclination of God, meets the faithful, righteous, just standard of God. These two things meet. Steadfast love and faithfulness meet. Righteousness and peace kiss each other, same words. So you've got hesed and amet meet. Amet and hesed kiss each other. Faithfulness springs up from the ground and righteousness looks down from the sky. Yes, the Lord will give what is good Absolute standards of truth get people all upset because they are afraid of not being able to live up to the standard and then being oppressed by the truth. But the Lord is capable, hear me this morning, the Lord is capable of both being a father who holds to an absolute standard of truth and morality and a father who is also loving and forgiving at the same time. There's some dads in the house, and I know they're going to feel me on this one. I'm not very good at balancing that. Sometimes I'm, I'm hard, I'm firm, I'm just when I should be merciful. And I'm, I let them off the hook with mercy because they give me the eyes when I should hold up justice. But God gets it right every time because that's who he is. It's exactly God defined. The imagery is so good here. In the Lord there's no conflict between perfect righteousness and perfect forgiveness. It's like when you walk into your to your sweet grandma's house on Christmas afternoon and she says, "Come here, honey, let me give you a big kiss. I made you a pie." There is no animosity in that relationship. There is no dissension. There's perfect harmony. I don't know what the relationship is for you. you, you mine's Grandma Betty. It's my wife's grandma. But when I walk into her house, I can, just, I can hear, I can smell the perfect relationship because she makes it so. There's nothing between us. There's no roadblocks between us. We live it. When I go to Grandma Betty's house, we exist in perfect harmony together because I just love her so much. And she loves me so much. Much. And this is the imagery that God is giving us with who He is of His justice and His mercy simultaneously. Those things never conflict in God, they exist in perfect harmony always. They're like old friends that greet each other with a kiss. How does the psalmist know this about God? Oh, this is so good. Exodus 34. Look at back in that same passage where God's about to fry him for being unfaithful. Look at what the Lord says to Moses. Exodus 34, verses 5 through 7. How does the psalmist know this about God? Because he knows Exodus. After the Lord relented of his wrath and Moses broke the first set of tablets with the Ten Commandments on them, Moses said to God, I want to see your glory. God said, Come back up the mountain, Moses, and I'll give you another set. And he goes beyond that. Moses just says, I want to see your glory. And he, God goes beyond that and said, Moses, I'll show you my glory and I'll tell you my name. I'll tell you my name. And this hearkens, remember back to the burning bush when Moses said, Mo, God was telling Moses, go to the Egyptians, and Moses says, what do, who do I tell him sent me, God? And God says, basically he's saying, what's your name, God? And God says to him, I am that I am. Almost like, who are you to ask me what my name is? You don't know me. Get out of here and go do what I said. So he doesn't reveal much about himself to Moses in that moment, because he wants to reveal it through the plagues. Okay? And so we've got unfolding revelation. So now we're coming to a point where Moses says, God, I, I just, I need to see your glory. I need, I need to be close to you, God, because these people are wearing me out and I need you. And God says, I'll show you my glory and I'll tell you my name. Ooh. And this is what God says to him. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood there with Moses and proclaimed his name to Moses. And this is what he said. This is what God says his name is. The Lord, the Lord, a merciful and gracious God, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, chesed, and faithfulness, amet, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving the iniquity and transgression of sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third And fourth generation this is what God says his name is to Moses and you know what Moses does in verse eight throw verse eight up there for me Nathaniel if you can 34 Exodus 34 verse 8 I'll just read it to you it says and Moses quickly bowed his head towards the earth and worshiped Moses reaction was revival and as much as the psalmist knew that the Lord would forgive this time and leave them in paths of righteousness going forward, he knew God would save them now and keep saving them into the future just because he knew who God was. He knew what God had said to him. God his name, when God is given the chance to tell someone his name, what most typifies him, God takes the opportunity in two short sentences to say, Moses, my name is justice and love. My name is chesed and amet, and these things do not conflict. It's who I am. I'm perfectly fair, and I'm perfectly Merciful. And if the psalmist, and this is just, all the the psalmist was working with was, was Exodus. And oh, if the psalmist could see what we have seen. If the psalmist could know what we know. If he had seen the righteousness in God and the steadfast love on display like we had seen it. He thought he had seen those two things on display. He thought he knew the greatest expressions of God given in Exodus chapter 34. But just to be real, that psalmist, he hadn't seen nothing yet. He had no idea. For God so steadfastly loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. That's said. That's steadfast love and faithfulness. Apart from God, you will perish, but it does not have to be that way. Today is the day of salvation. God is going to hold you accountable for your sins, but he's also told you that all of your sins can rest on the shoulders of his bruised, battered, and bloody son on a cross. And as he hung on the cross, the righteousness of God was satisfied, and the steadfast, forgiving love of God was magnified. Steadfast love and faithfulness meet. Where? At the cross. Righteousness and peace kiss each other. Where? At the cross. Verse 11, faithfulness sprung up from the ground as the cross was lifted upward from the ground. And the Father turned his face away from the Son, bearing the weight of the sin of the world. Righteousness looked down, verse 11, from the sky. Look at that. Psalm 85, verse 10 and 11. And I don't, I don't know. I don't know your walk. I don't know your struggles. I don't, I don't know where you're at. I, it's impossible for me to know, as an associate pastor in a Baptist church, where every single one of your thoughts are, where you stand with God. I don't know. But I can tell you this I know this for sure. You need the God of the Bible who manages justice and love perfectly, you need him you need him today. I, if you've never walked with him, you need him today. If you've walked with him for 75 years, you need him today. Come, brothers and sisters. Come, sinners and here. Come and warm yourselves by the warm fire of revival of a God who is perfectly just and justifier on your behalf. And I, I do, I pray, I pray for revival. I pray for revival in your heart right now. Repent, remember, plead, and hope. I pray for that right now in, in all of your hearts. And in my heart, I pray for that in the community of Mount Vernon as well. I pray for that for Todd and Brittany as they go overseas to Dubai and they do ministry with, with, with Muslims, with students that all they've ever known is a God of justice and not a God of mercy, God, do it. Do, bring revival in that way. Not a, not a superficial revival, not a revival that just gets everybody excited and then they go home, but the kind of revival that lasts, that keeps on getting hotter and hotter and hotter and hotter because we're just exposed over and over and over again to a God who is both able to uphold an absolute standard of justice and rightness and also love you like your Father and embrace you and forgive you. That is the God of Psalm 85, and that is the God of the Bible. And that's the only God of true revival. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, help us to repent where we need to repent, to see our sinfulness for what it is, to not be a stiff-necked people. God, we are a stiff-necked people. We hate being told that we're wrong. We hate it when, when it's pointed out that we're, we're off, that we're, we're running against your, your absolute standards. It's innate to all of us. And we still, Lord, we cling to our sin. We cling to those chains that have bound us for so long and we don't have to. We don't have to. They're no good to us. They won't help us. They won't bring... Security. God, I pray for that brother or sister that's in my hearing right now that they've, they've been hinted at and told by another brother or sister that loves them so much of, of something they can correct or your spirit has just stricken them and made them aware of, of something they need to repent of. And I would just, God, I pray right now they would just stop holding on to it. Stop being insecure about it. Stop being upset about it. And they would just give it up just own it and repent, and then come before a merciful God, a God that is abounding in steadfast love that will never end, so much so that you sent your son to die, you took on flesh to ransom us, to bring us back to yourself. What love is this, Lord? Lord. We can't even begin to fathom it. We can just begin to enjoy it and feel it. So, Lord Jesus, I pray for that kind of revival in our hearts. God, I pray for that kind of revival. And the unsaved people that I'm, I, just, I know that are right around me. And all of us, Lord, we, we, we are heads bowed, eyes closed. We're thinking of those people that they're lost. They don't know your love. We lift them before you right now. And we ask for this kind of revival in their hearts. That you would bring resurrection like you rose from the grave, Lord, that you would rise, bring their souls to life. Revival. Thank you for being a God that convicts. Thank you for being a God that has forgiven sin. Thank you for being a God that will forgive sin right now. And thank you for being the God that will pave the way all the way home for undeserving rebels. Lead us in paths of righteousness for your name's sake. And it's in that precious name that we pray. Amen.